Good morning. This morning's Bible reading is on page 1094 in the Church Bibles, and it comes from Acts 4, verse 32 to 511. So that's page 1094. And it starts with the title, The Believers Share Their Possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, God, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that, the, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jonathan, as you can see from my name tag. I've never been referred to so formally, but, you know, Jonathan it is from now on. Um, and welcome. Welcome. I'm the, the youth pastor here, if you don't know me. And we're going we're gonna to get into this uh, passage, which is sometimes beautiful, sometimes quite severe and difficult. So we're going to pray as we explore this. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. Uh, that you speak to us, that you are with us, that as we gather here today, your, your presence is in this room with us. And Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would be speaking to each and every one of us, into our hearts and into our lives, and that you would comfort and challenge us. Amen. 
We have been, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking through this book, the book of Acts, the story of the early church about 2,000 years ago as it spread from like a handful of people to well, us sitting here at the, the far ends of the world, part of the largest religion on the face of the planet. And we're, we're tracking that story through the book of Acts. And last week, um, Matt, our assistant pastor, he was going through Acts 2. It's the story of the Spirit coming upon the followers, the the believers. And it turns this handful of men and, and women from these timid, scared people locked in a room. And the Spirit comes and they step out and they speak with boldness and clarity and thousands of people uh, turn and follow Jesus. And it's an incredible story. And in that sermon last week, Matt made a little a link. And maybe you didn't notice it or you forgot about it or didn't know what he was talking about. But it, he linked that, that this, this story of the Spirit coming and the believers speaking with another story in the Bible. And it was the story of, of the Tower of Babel. And the reason why, why he linked them is that in, in Acts 2, there are all these people gathered from all different languages and different parts of the world. And as the Spirit descends on the, the disciples, as they speak, every person hears it as if it was in their own language. And so it's this coming together of languages where people once were not able to understand each other are now able to understand each other. And he linked it to this other story, which is the, the story of Babel, which is where people all share a language, they work together, they build this tower, and then God tells, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work. And he gives them new languages, he confuses the languages and sends them out. And maybe you didn't really uh, pick that up in Matt's sermon last week, but when I heard that, and it's something that I've heard before discussed around this passage, I just started, I couldn't get the story out of my head. I couldn't get the Tower of Babel out of my head. And then when I came to, to this passage, all these dots started to come together when I viewed this story through the lens of the Tower of Babel. So we're going to do something a bit, uh, a bit different today. We're going to do something a bit interesting. We're going to view this passage in Acts 4 through the story of the Tower of Babel. And if you're thinking, Johnny, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> like, shut up. That's like... It's okay, that's fine, bear with me, and maybe at the end we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how I go, we'll see if we get somewhere, okay? Um, but to do this, we, we're going to need to go right back. So we're going to need to go right back to the beginning. And so in the beginning, right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we have God, and he makes the world, and he makes a garden, and in the garden he places humanity. And at the center of this garden, there's a tree, and it's the tree of life. The tree of life in the center of the garden. And he also places another tree in this garden, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God says to humanity, because you can eat from any tree you like, including the tree of life, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge and good of good and evil. And so humanity, they, of course, go straight to the tree they're not supposed to eat from. And they listen to the voice of the serpent that says, if you eat from this tree, you'll have knowledge. You'll be able to know right from wrong, and you will be like God. And because humans, we desired that. We desired that knowledge, that wisdom. We desired that fame. We desired to be like God, an object of worship in ourselves. Humanity ate from that tree, and we're kicked out of the garden, and it all falls apart. 
As then Genesis continues, we get the story of Cain and Abel and the flood. And, and at the end of this sort of preface to, to Genesis in the Bible, we have the Tower of Babel, which is where all people, they speak one language, they come together, and they use their technology that they have created. They've created the brick. They've harnessed creation. They've made a brick. And working together, they said, you know what we should do? We should build a tower that goes up into the heavens, up to the heavens. Why? So that we can make a name for ourselves. So that we can make ourselves famous, that everyone will know us, that we would become an object of worship, that people would see our tower and go, wow, look at them. It's as if they want to build a tower up to the heavens so that they can become God. And there's this ironic moment in the story where God, he has to come down from heaven to see this little pathetic creation of theirs. And he, and he goes, oh, no, no, no. If this is what humanity does working together, no. And so he confuses their language and he scatters them. And that's sort of the end of the, the preface to the Bible. But then the story goes on. We meet Abraham and, and through Abraham there's this promise that his descendants will bring blessing to the entire world. That's the story of, of Israel. And then we get Jesus, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. And in his life, he establishes on earth his church, his kingdom. And then last week in Acts 2, we saw the Spirit come down and empower that church and that kingdom. And that brings us here to where we are in this passage now in Acts Four. We're going to start by just reading the, the first half of that first verse um, in Acts 4. In verse 32, it says, All believers were one in heart and mind. So all the believers in this church, they're united. They've come together. They've been brought together by God. That's an amazing thing. But when we start to look at this through the lens of Babel, we go, wait, hang on a minute. We've seen all humanity come together before, and it wasn't necessarily a good thing. And if, if, we, if we go outside of the Bible as well, we can look back through history, even the last century, and we can look at so many times, repeated times, where human beings have come together, unified, under a cause, and have done atrocious things. They have committed atrocities, war, and awful crimes, and they've come together and they've used their unity for this awful actions. And so there's this question that I think hovers over that first verse. All the people, the believers, have come together in unity. And the question is going to be, what are they going to do with their unity? What are they going to build with their unity? Because back in Genesis, they were united, but what did they do? They built a tower to themselves. They wanted to build a name for themselves. They wanted to become objects of worship, and so they built this tower to themselves. And now the question is, after these, over these believers, they've come together. What are they going to build? And we keep reading just the end of that verse and into the next one. It says, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. No one claimed that what they owned was their own, but they shared everything that they had. You see, it's a completely different unity, isn't it? 
The first unity in Babel was all about them. It was all about me. It was all about my tower, my name, making a name for myself. And in here, the second unity that we see in the church is this unity where they go, it's not about me at all. Everything I have, it's not about me. All that I have, it's not even mine, it's ours. Everything I have is for the kingdom. Everything I have is for the church. Whatever I've been given, I am going to use for the kingdom. It's a completely different mindset. And this year at St. Stephen's, we've been looking at the vision that we are, we are sent. And part of that is that that we, as a group and as individuals, we have all been sent into this world, into this church, into our lives. And we have not been sent ill-equipped. We have been sent with tools, with gifts, with resources. And we have been sent with them to build his kingdom. And here we have the the early church, using all that they have been given, sent into their world in a time and place, and they are using all that they have to build the kingdom. And if we continue reading in the story from verse 34, it says, there were no needy persons among them. This is what happens when we give everything towards the, the kingdom and the community. There are no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, they brought the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's an incredible act of unity. To sell your own properties and to give the money away, that's an incredible act of unity. And what I love about this passage here in Acts 4 is that this is not a metaphor this is not a metaphor of what the church is like. This is what the church is like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like people radically sacrificing their own for the sake of another, helping those in need, building a real, tangible community. Not one of trite cliches, but a lived reality, a lived experiential reality. You see, here, people come together in unity, and instead of building this tower to themselves, they built the kingdom of God. So I think there comes a question, right? We've got this unity that leads to the tower, and then we've got this unity that leads to the kingdom. The question is, okay, what's different about these two unities? We've got human beings working together in both of them, but what is different about the kingdom unity? And I think the, the answer lies in what that unity is centered around. What is at the center of the unity? What is at the center of the community? And if we sort of go back through our, our biblical story, right, we start to see this picture unfold. So if we go right back to the beginning, and we've got the garden. At the center of the garden was the tree of life. That was what was at the center, the tree of life. And as the story continues and through the Israelites, we see that the tabernacle and the temple, these places where, where, where God is with his people. And both those structures, the tabernacle and the temple, they are both decorated with images of the garden, with images of trees and flowers reminding the people of the garden that's at the beginning of the Bible. And at the center of both those structures is the, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant is what the, the Jewish people would call the Torah. The Torah, or the, for us it's the, the law, or the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. That's right at the center. 
And the Jewish tradition speaks that the Torah, the law, is the new tree of life. They were given the law and they had to make a choice, just like humanity at the beginning, whether or not they would eat from the tree of life, whether or not they would follow the law of God. And as the story continues beyond our time into the future, we get to the book of Revelation. And there's the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to earth and it's like a city, like Jerusalem. And at the center of that city is the tree of life. So there's this pattern that goes all the way through from the beginning all the way through to the end. And so here we have the church. We have the kingdom on earth now. And so what's its center? What is it centered around? Well, we read in verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. You see, this kingdom, the kingdom of the disciples and the early church and the present church, it is centered around the person, the life, the teaching, and the experience of Jesus. It's centered completely around Jesus who died on a cross, who died on a tree. He died on a tree to give life. See, in the garden, there was the tree of life. In heaven, in New Jerusalem, there's a tree of life. But here now on earth, there is the new tree of life. It's the cross of Jesus. He died on it to bring life. And it is by this tree we now have the the choice. Are we going to partake from this tree of life or not? Here, the reason why the unity is different It is because it is centered on Jesus. And if you compare Jesus to what happened at Babel, they are worlds apart. Because Babel was all about the self. It was all about self-promotion, making a name for myself, making myself great. What did Jesus do? He abandoned that greatness that he could have had, and he came down, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not self-promotion, but self-sacrifice. At the heart of the church, at the heart of our unity, is a spirit of sacrifice, not promotion. The passage goes on in verse 36 and through to the end of uh, 511. And it tells these two stories and As I alluded to at the beginning, one of these stories, and you know the one, it's really uncomfortable to hear, and it feels really severe and tricky, and and like, to be honest, when I was asked to preach on this, I kind of wanted to stop at verse 37 and just not do the five part. I thought, that would be much easier, wouldn't it? That would be nice. But it's here for us, like God wants to speak to us through this. And as I started to think about this idea of Babel and the tower, this section in five all started to make sense for me. These lines started to be drawn. So if we look at these two sort of contrasting stories, the first we get is about a young man named Joseph in verse 36. He says, the Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That is an incredible testament to the sacrifice of Jesus, isn't it? 
Like he sold, I don't know what the property market was like then, but if it's anything like today, that's, that's a massive thing to do, right? He sold a field that he owned and he goes, it's not about me. It's all about the kingdom. It's not about me. Yeah, I've been given this field, but I'm going to give it to build the kingdom. And this money distributed for the work of the church and the kingdom. That's incredible sacrifice. It's not about me. Joseph understands that. And the apostles and the church, they're so encouraged by him. They give him this name. They call him Barnabas, which Chris was speaking to us about a couple of weeks ago, which means son of encouragement, because he is such an encouragement to the church because of the way he lives. And what I love about this is there is not a single time where Joseph is told he should give away his field. He's not commanded to do this. There is nowhere in the Bible where Jesus goes, to follow me, you must sell everything you own and give it away. He never commands that of people. Joseph is not commanded to do that, but he chooses to. He chooses to give up what he has and give it to the church. And so for us, Jesus isn't commanding us to do that. But I think it raises a question of, would we? Would we be willing to do that? See, it's all about the kingdom for Joseph. And again, this story about him, it's not a metaphor. It's a a reality. So let me go into the the second story in verse chapter 5 through to 11. And this is, it's an uncomfortable story. It really is. We get this couple called Ananias and Sapphira, and, and they too, they sell a field. They sell a field that they own. And they give the money to the church, to the apostles. But they hold some back for themselves. And they both know this is happening. They both know what they're doing. They hold the money back. And then they come with the rest of the money and go, this is all of it. This is all the money we got. And we want to give it to the church. But they both know they're actually holding back a chunk of it for themselves. It would look incredible, wouldn't it? It's just all for the church. It's all for the church. And then the story goes on, and, and Peter says to them, one by one, the, the husband comes first and then the wife, he says to them, why did you lie? You don't just lie to men. You lie to God. Why did you lie? And then both of them, they die. And it seems like really severe. Like, did it really warrant that sort of response? That's a severe response. So you've got me thinking, what is it about this lie that is so problematic that God deals with it in a way in which he does? Why is this lie that they tell such a problem? And, and I guess the first thing we need to clarify is that the problem here is not that they withheld money. The problem is that they lied about it. Because Peter says to them, he goes, the field is yours and the money is yours. You can do whatever you want with it. You're free to use it however you want to use it. But don't come here and lie about it. That's the problem. The problem is the lie. So what is it about this lie that is so problematic? If you think about it, why would they lie in this situation? Why would they lie? Well, what do they get from lying? Well, they look incredible, don't they? They get a reputation. Like, I sold a field and I'm just giving it to the church. I'm just giving it all away. Not about me, it's about you guys. 
They get this reputation where they look incredible. They look amazing. And they've probably heard about Joseph. And Joseph, after he did that, he got a name. They called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And maybe they thought, yeah, we could do that too. And then we could get a name. We could get a name for ourselves. Wouldn't that be great? A name for ourselves. We've heard that saying before, haven't we? When they built the tower, why did they build a tower? So we could make a name for ourselves. Let's make ourselves great. Let's lift ourselves up about me. Let me become an object of worship. Let's make a name for ourselves. See, the problem with this story of Ananias and Sapphira is they are operating and acting not from a spirit of God and sacrifice, but from a spirit of Babel. They are operating from that self-glorifying spirit. And God has seen how that spirit plays out. He has seen what that spirit leads to. It might look like an innocent little uh, issue here, but God knows if you plant that seed and you continue to water that seed, he knows what it grows up to be. That same spirit in Babel, it's it's the same spirit that has underpinned every evil society throughout all history. It's the same spirit of Mordor, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Of course we're going to bring Lord of the Rings in, won't we? It's the same spirit that builds those evil kingdoms, is present in that heart, in that heart of Babel that says it's about me. And God says there is no place for this. Not in my kingdom. Not in my church. There is no place for that spirit. One of the reasons why God is so severe with them is that his church, that he is creating his kingdom, This is like the genesis of it. This is right at the beginning. This is the foundations of it. And God is saying, at the foundational level, I will not allow my kingdom to be built on the spirit of Babel. Because we are not building a tower. We are not building a tower to ourselves. We are building a kingdom of God. And it is built around the cross of Jesus. One of sacrifice, not promotion. And just as a quick aside here on this, this passage of Anais and Sapphira, I, I don't believe that this passage here is, is talking about their salvation, about what happened after they died. I, I don't think it's making a point about that. I think it's making a point about how much God treasures his kingdom and what his kingdom will become. And if we look, as you can, if we, if we look through the history of the church, and the church has not always been perfect, uh, far from it. The church has done terrible things throughout all of history. It's done some amazing things as well, but it's done some terrible things. But if we look back through the history of the church, and we see at every time where the church entwines itself with that spirit of Babylon, that spirit of self-promotion and lifting itself up, when we see church leaders and people in a church congregation entwine themselves with the spirit of Babylon, That's where it all falls apart every time. It's a disaster. And we can see that throughout history. But when we see the church come together in a spirit of unity around Jesus and his sacrifice, that is when we see the church at its most beautiful. That is when we see the church doing wonderful things for families, individuals, communities, and the world. That is when we see the church be a blessing when it says no to Babel and yes to the cross. And so for us, 
here today is, you know, we are part of the lineage of this church. We are the present reality of the church that was established by Jesus. What does this mean for us? What can we do from today? The first thing I ask of myself and of us is that we would pray that God would reveal in us, in our hearts, anything that is of the spirit of Babel. Everything that is about me, building my tower and my name, making myself great and an object of worship, that God would reveal, however small its manifestation is, any trace of that spirit, he would reveal it to us, and instead he would replace it with his spirit of love and sacrifice. And then, free from the pressure and temptation of Babel, we could achieve a unity that is not about building a tower, but is about building his kingdom. And we could be the church that has been sent, equipped with tools and resources where we can freely give because it's not about ourselves. It's about the kingdom and we can give to build his church and his kingdom. And that we would live our lives every day centered around the person, the teaching, the life, death, resurrection, and experience of knowing Jesus, our new eternal tree of life. And I'm going to pray for that end right now, if you'd like to pray with me. Father, we are sorry for the times in our life where we have listened to that voice, the voice that says it's all about me, the voice that only cares about ourselves. The voice that wants to build a tower and monument to our own glory. And Father, we pray that you would reveal in us all the inclinations of our spirit towards that. And you would rid them. You would get rid of them and replace them instead with your spirit. That leads us in love to each other. That leads us to the sacrifice of your son. That leads us to give to one another as they need. And Father, we pray that in the unity that you have established within us by your Spirit, that we would be unified not to build towers, but to build your kingdom. And Father, we pray that you would equip us and use us with all that we have. And you would help us to realize that we are sent. We are sent equipped with tools and resources. And Father, help us, each and every one of us, to use all that we have and invest it and build it in your kingdom, which is eternal and magnificent. And Father, we pray all this, knowing that we can't do it without your help. And so we center and surrender our lives to you, and we center them from the cross of your Son, who gave his life for us, that we may experience a new, wonderful, eternal life with you now and forever. Amen.